Thank you for listening to this episode of the Following Films Podcast, a movie podcast that takes you on a weekly journey into the world of cinema and the minds of the talented individuals who shape it. I'm your host, Chris Maynard, and today I'm joined by director of photography, Nick Matthews. We chat about Nick's work on the latest installment of the Saw franchise, Saw X. But before we dive into our conversation with Nick, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Bookman's. Bookman's is your go-to independent bookstore where you can find an extensive selection of books, movies, music, and so much more. They truly believe in the power of storytelling and the magic of the cinematic arts. So if you're looking to expand your film, music, or book collection, be sure to visit your nearest Bookman's. There's always something truly wonderful to discover. Have you followed the Following Films podcast on Spotify? If you have, well, thank you. If you haven't, head on over to Spotify. Search for Following Films and give us a follow. It really does help the show. Saw X is currently playing in theaters everywhere, and it's getting some of the best reviews in the franchise's history. Make sure you check it out this weekend. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. All right, we'll see how it goes. We'll see. <laughs> well, thanks, man. I appreciate you taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So I was really excited to talk to you because... Um, I really enjoyed Mobland. Um, oh, it was, cool. And I loved your work on it. I thought you did such a good job with what I assume was a limited budget. Um, and it's one of those things where it was a movie that I had very different expectations for what it ended up actually being. And I feel like that's a movie that really deserves to be looked at this year that may have gone a little bit overlooked because I think it's a hell of a film there. Thank you so much. Yeah, we really... You know, we were making a move in that film was being made in a specific model, which is, you know, it's a foreign finance. It's a, it's a sort of movie that you're just, you're expecting to pick up a red box. And we went into it trying to be like, how do we make a movie with that model, which is short days? I mean, we had, um, I think we had 11 days of principal photography and three days of splinter. (laughs) So it's just, yeah, it's an absurd schedule. Um, and you know, it's this director's first feature He's yeah. a photographer and, um, he's a friend of mine and I've done commercial work with him before. And it's like, you know, we're sitting here and it's like, well, on the one hand, you're just like, shit, how do I make a movie with that amount of time? But on the other hand, you're like, well, John Travolta said he would do it. And <laughs> Steven Dorff said he would do it. And, you know, these are fantastic performers. And so I think we were taking a script that was. I feel like the script that I read was written that would have been, you know, a $15 million movie and yeah. we're having to make it for, you know, a fraction of that. Um, and so you, you go in and you have to make a lot of decisions and compromises and um, yeah. So it's been exciting to have people. I mean, the original title of the movie was American metal, which makes which so much more sense. Cause I know I, I, Mobland doesn't make any it, fucking it makes, sense, man. I'm sorry. But. No, it doesn't. We were so frustrated. Like, yeah, the director and I were both, I mean, it's just one of those things where you, we didn't have any control over the distributor. It was like, this This is the title. And we're like, why? <laughs> it's not, there's not a mob element in the movie. It makes you think of a 50s film. It's not, you know, it just, yeah. And unfortunately with this kind of movie, like you're you're really at the, especially as a first time director sure. um, and the kind of movie that it is and the people that made it, you know, or financed it we were very much in their hands in that regard. And which is frustrating because Nicholas is a designer as well. And he's done, he did some amazing designs for, you know, the American metal like poster and concept. And they just, 
you know, I think they, they're used to a specific model. And so they were like, this is how we, we make this model. And we are like, we vehemently disagree. Uh, but you know, at the same time, you just, you make the best movie you can and you, and you like, and you try to connect with audiences and, um, Despite all that, I think that there's something that's really good there. Even maybe if it's uh, yeah. removed from what you had initially wanted to make with the budget yeah. that you needed to make it and all that, I think that it's a hell of a film because I'm familiar with um, the Savan model and the other stuff yeah. that they put out, and it's a specific thing. And that's what my expectations were around that. Those are they're fine. They're yeah. just they're, they're they're there's a little bit formulaic element to them, and they, you know, kind of it's like that almost that Corman model where it's okay. Here's yes. your title. Here's your poster. Go make a movie. It feels like yes. to some degree, yes. um, but oftentimes in that model, you end up seeing really interesting filmmakers do their exciting work. You find new people in that. And that's why I always pay attention to that stuff. Cause you know, that's where you find the next, uh, uh, whoever the next thing that you're the next Coppola came out of that kind of a model. So it's just always exciting to watch that stuff to me. Yeah. And Nicholas is, I mean, he is just, you know, he's a very proactive person. He's a go-getter. He's very yeah. adaptable. I mean, we literally, the finale of the movie, which is set in this like beautiful, technically the, all those trucks were full of explo- explosives, which we didn't know. And people were like smoking cigarettes on set and stuff. And we were like, wait, what? And literally we lost our, we had a cemetery that we had found that we were going to shoot in. And we lost it the night before we started shooting the finale. And we shot the finale day one. You know, the, and it was just, so we had to go out the night before and just drive around and be like, where are we, where can we do this? And the place we were originally going to do base camp was, you know, that at that location. And so we had, we talked to the guy and started exploring his property. And it was just, there was a lot of things like that that happened where to some degree, like the speed that with that movie was made at actually there's elements of it that were great in that we were shooting two cameras. We're doing, um, you know, we're shooting nine pages a day, you know? And so you, you know, and it's like, you have, but there is a certain, like, like Steven Dorf is, you know, he is a very strong personality. He is, uh, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. You know, he's a mythical kind of a guy in a way. And I think in this film, being able to give him this ability to just like, say these lines and have this cadence and kind of play this, you know, Nicholas always described his character in the movie as like an act, like a Japanese action figure that you're just like, you know, you would pull it off the shelf and like, be like, Oh, this guy's got like these cool boots. And yeah. So it's a very <laughs> like that kind of a, you know, that kind of a thing. But yeah, it's like, it was a great, I mean, it was a pretty wild experience. Well, and despite that, the pace that it was made, you take moments to have stillness and quiet in it, where it's when I found out the, production schedule on this thing i was floored because it doesn't feel frenetic it does feel you take times to be to be thoughtful for moments and i and i think it does slow down at times that in a way that a film made in these types of circumstances probably wouldn't do a lesser film wouldn't have taken the time for that you would have just gotten what you needed and gotten out yeah i mean a lot of that comes from you know nicholas has a very adaptable approach like we do when we're shooting scenes and it's so different on every movie, right? That, that film, we knew we were going to go in with a bit of a docu style, but still yeah. try to be cinematic, still try to, you know, make choices about where we put the camera and what we're doing. Um, and I, I still had to leave, you know, at a second unit shooting for a week, which frankly, Nicholas like put his raid in so he could bring a buddy out to do second unit. Like it was oh, that wow. kind of, yeah. Like he, 
he was putting some of his rate back in to do that and to, you know, bring on, get, I mean, he orchestrated getting all the cars that are in the movie from this like Instagram account called Ratty Muscle Cars. And they came from Alabama to Georgia. It was like that kind of a thing, you know, for, I mean, John's wearing a, his badge is actually like a real sheriff's badge that we managed to get. Like somebody was like, Oh, John Travolta, wear my badge in the movie. Like, and you know, the props, the prop masters were people who had done a lot of these. I mean, I hate the term, but it is with the geezer teaser sort of movies. And they're like, Oh, it doesn't matter. Like, this is just, you know, it's just some sheriff badges. And we're like, no, no. Oh, like an, a you know, Alabama state trooper has a different badge than an Alabama sheriff has. And like, you can't just slap on a little star and they're like, well, it'll just be, you won't see it. And like, you're going to see it in every shot that John Travolta's in. So like, you know, that level of detail and fastidiousness, you know, we had, th- we had a two and a half week prep. I think he and I got there three <laughs> weeks before the movie started. And it just, these kinds of movies are also the sort of thing where they make, they put out offers to all these actors and then sure. somebody says yes you know that gets interested and john really loved the script and when he said yes that meant we went but it also meant you know they were slotting it into the specific timeline that was john travolta's schedule sure. so everything's back ended into that and you're just yeah we he i think i heard it was happening and then flew to georgia two days later and then nicholas and i started scouting and just yeah very fast paced but um you know his photo because he comes from photography, I think, and we got, and we fought for and got um, three splinter days in Alabama. So we mm-hmm. were actually able, like, there were just times where we would, you know, I'd send out somebody or I would go out and we'd just shoot stuff. And we just, because we prioritize a very practical lighting, naturalistic lighting approach, we sure. were actually able to, I mean, we're still doing stuff. We're still changing out the fixtures and we're still adding things and, you know, like the barn, it's like none of the lights or set dressing was in there. We placed all that, but of it's, course. but it's set. And then I'm, you know, I'm able to move very quickly because it's designed to be, it's, you know, there's a mood and an intention, but it's, it's all built in. Um, sure. and that gave us like a certain speed as well. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 and sorry to take over. I know that we were here to talk about something else, but it's one of those ones that I just want to call attention to the film. Cause it's one of those ones that I have been really excited about this year, but it's, uh, it's always fun. I think that it's always, it's something when I feel like there's reference points in a movie, even if they weren't direct, but if I'm watching something and I'm think it's, there's parts that are my pre-bias. So if I see two guys standing on a wall, I think of clerks. It's just going to happen every time I see that. If I see certain low angle moving through a forest at a certain way, I'm thinking Miller's Crossing. And if you happen to throw a hat, it's absolutely Miller's Crossing. So it's it's those kinds of things. And there were these references in here that I felt, whether it was a conscious or subconscious level or something that was going on there, I felt like there was real artistry on display here. So great film and great job on that, especially under the circumstances you made it. Yeah, I can't. I genuinely, he's got a few other scripts. All of his films are very, they're character driven and propulsive, but they're also very, like, you know, with their popcorn as yeah. well. And so, like, I really hope he gets to make another movie and I get to shoot it. I think um, you will. I, I think people will recognize this. So, yeah, absolutely. But, okay, going from that <laughs> to yeah. something with a tent in the title. So what is that transition like for you? Cause I, so personally, I'm somebody who 
for all of the you know ten nine films of the series that I've seen so far, they're kind of all over the map as far as the ones that I connect with, the ones that I you know kind of distance myself from, or I'm like okay, that's not my favorite one or whatever that is. But there's they are never not interesting. Um, from yeah. the, they're always just it, it's there's a, always a little bit of a magic trick in the way that they retrofit certain time frames and all that and it's always it's just the incredible how far they've been able to stretch this thing out from where it right? started <laughs> that it's just like how are they still doing this and it's just like okay i'm on board and I, I just keep going along with it and it's always fun i'm never not entertained by these things and it's never not something that it just might not land completely with me but it's always something like wow i i've never seen that before that's really and they are also from a visual standpoint for films like this i think they're actually they set up a visual language that you know they have that's unique to themselves. They created a lot of stuff here. There was some Japanese films that I think were probably an influence with some of the use of the color green and things like that. But it's like they had a very distinctive style right out of the gate. Oh yeah, I mean it's yeah. It was a it was so I shot Moblin last year in I think like April and May, mm-hmm. and I did commercial work for the summer, and then Saw came to me in a very like similar everything about filmmaking just feels a bit like a whirlwind it does it's just never yeah it, it, i i got a call from my agent he's like i've got a script i think you might be interested in there it's the next saw movie and i was like okay and then i read the script and talked to kevin Groot um yeah. that day at like at five hours after i read the script and so i had seen his lookbook i'd read the script but i you know that's a little there's there's two sides of that sometimes sometimes i get sent scripts and they actually want me to put together a lookbook and they want me to sort of make a presentation sure and i kind of hate doing that because it's basically like here is a vision for this movie that has nothing to do with the conversations that a director and i might have that has you know what i mean it's yeah. my staff at something but i also understand from a production's perspective and like trying to hire somebody why they might do that in this case that wasn't what happened it was just a conversation and Kevin and I really connected. We connected about a lot of, you know, connected about a lot of things in film and literature and photography. And so um, I think he talked to like five directors I'd worked with. I sent him names of, and then I got hired like two days later. So it was very fast. And the thing is Kevin is so instrumental in like in the entire series because Kevin edited Saw one through five and then he directed six directed seven um which you know he that's not the movie that he, he's most proud of i'll say okay um, he it's just six six and stuff from six was more his his style and then he was forced to do 3d and okay like, that's not thing i want to do um but it you know these were decisions made at a bigger level um and then this film brought kevin back because I guess the script had been floating around for a while and um, he just said it kept getting better. And when he first read it, he didn't quite connect with it. And then by the time this movie was getting ready to go and they were interested in working with Kevin again, he was like, this script is fantastic. And when I read it, I was like, this is the best script of the franchise. Really? And the reasons I say that are it draws from everything i mean it's set between one and two it draws from everything that the early films do really well and for the first time in the franchise tobin bell is the lead and he's in 80 percent of the movie you know and as an audience member he's all a no-brainer seems like it wasn't that already the sorry but yeah no but, but but yeah but exactly so 
Um, you know, it's a very like part of me is like, how much does Kevin want me to talk about some of that stuff? But it doesn't matter. Um, it's just, yeah, it's a fantastic is a fantastic script. It really got me excited. It got me excited about Tobin Bell and working with Tobin Bell. And you hear you have a thespian who's been doing this since as early as Mississippi Grind. You know, yeah. It's like or Mississippi Burning. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like he's been in so much. He has a you know he's just fans connect with him, but also there's a reason we connect with him. There's a reason that he's become the preeminent kind of figure. Him and Billy. Um, and so going into that, there was. I guess I think I was nervous in the sense that I was like, I like I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian religious home. And so I had to fight for every violent or sexual, you know, movie that I was watching. Yeah. Sex was like the the Bible's full of violence. So I could get could get into macabre, but I couldn't sex was a harder, harder sell. Um, but so in I was in high school when the first saw came out and mm-hmm. I was not allowed to go to movie theaters. That was not on the table. And so it's a very specific subset of Christianity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so I really like, you know, fought with my dad to be able to watch that so the Saw films. And so I watched one through three in high school, and then I kind of didn't keep up with the franchise at that point. And so when I booked this, I um, I was like, well, which movie should I watch, Kevin? He's like, watch one, two, three, and six, because that's kind of what we're going to be referencing in this movie. Mm-hmm. And so I studied those movies. I didn't watch any of the others. Um, and we took, you know, we made a lot of decisions We that were to pay homage to those films. There's a lot of stylistic choices. Even if you look at the the eye trap, they've released some, you know, some stuff online. Yeah that and we're using under cranking again we're using like big i sort of describe saw as like seven by way of a new metal music video (laughs) it's like you know disturbed and heaven man's and all that shit and it's there's a saw has a lot of exclamation points like and so the cameras there's a flourish there's a subjectivity to it and we wanted to bring all of that back in we wanted these really strong deep you know grimy color palettes like kind of scuzzy and yeah um, so it's the arsenical greens, the ochre yellows, the, you know, these kind of crimson reds. And we're look and we're talking about, you know, and Kevin was the one who's like, look, Billy is directly pulled from deep red, you know? And so it's, there's a giallo inspiration for the movie. Oh my God. Of course. How did I not put that together? I, I didn't, I didn't until Kevin mentioned it. And then I was like, oh, and so there's such a giallo element to the saw films. So for us, it was like, how do we bring these big, you know how to, and it's like it's a yes it's 10 but because it's set between one and two because it's frankly like the franchise kind of went a different direction for a little bit sure this was sort of like we want to take everything that people loved about this movie's the reason i love the early movies the reason kevin loves the early movies you know those are the movies i mean kevin won't even tell you like those are the movies he likes best in the, in the sure. franchise so we were, and I think fans too. So I think we wanted to take that, but then still give it our own twist. And I think the the scare of that, and you know, the scare of that is, of course, like, will you succeed in this process? But up front, in the very beginning, you're just, it's like any other movie. It's, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I need to figure <laughs> it out. You know what I mean? I, it's like, I want to have all the answers right away, but the process is how you discover the answers. And so it, you know, we had a, we shot it in Mexico City, um, and we had uh, 33 days to shoot, but we prepped there. We worked with all local crew, except for 
we had a prosthetics company from LA that mm-hmm. had done Westworld fractured effects. They're great. They did Westworld. They did um, the Nick, which I'm a big fan of. I, yeah. Such yeah. an underrated show. That's yeah. Uh, and yeah. When I saw they had done the Nick, I'm like, Oh fuck. And yeah. That show is fucking brutal. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like I am not usually, like, I don't get messed up by gore or violence very much in movies. Like it just doesn't. Surgery gore is something different though, man. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. rough. Yeah. And that, so like we just, we had, it's like, we have all these great things working in our favor. We have fantastic crew in Mexico. We have Tobin Bell, who's just fantastic and a great, also just like a really great person. Like, I don't know him in a personal life. I've just been on set with him and, but just my experience on set as well as he was on my flight back from Mexico and he waited for me at the door and like, you know, stopped me and said, so Nick, I just want to ask you, like, how do you feel about what we just did there? And it's, and I was like, Tobin, when I met Kevin, I told him I thought we had the chance to make the best Saw movie. And I think we just did that. And I still feel that way. And I've wow. seen the movie. Um, you know, fans will have to make their, I mean, people might totally disagree with me and see the movie and hate it. But that is how I, you know, that was my feeling making it. And that's how I feel about it. I haven't seen it. So it's just, you know, there's a, it was a lot of fun. And you, you, Kevin is a like fantastic editor. He's an amazing storyteller. He directed and edited this movie and he, he just knows this series in a way that is daunting, you know? And so you just, I soaked up a lot from him. He's got a great sense of humor and um, there was a lot of trust and, and it was, yeah, it was a really fun process. And, you know, it was also, it's terrifying. Every time I make a movie, it's terrifying. I'm like, worried that i'm gonna ruin the film you know and that's just and so you're just like kind of you know but and i usually don't know what i'm doing exactly i mean i always have a plan and i've always figured stuff out and i have to rent stuff in advance but it's usually within the last like three days before we start shooting that i actually figure out how i'm gonna approach it um and then you get into it and it's just it's not just execution it is figuring it out on the day that's the the balance that we all have to strike though i think where there there's a little bit of imposter syndrome that's healthy that makes you you should have reverence for the fact that you've been asked to do this thing that's so rare you're getting to make pretend for a living and that's something that's pretty damn cool so that part of it but then there's the you have to do the job at the end of the day so it's that balance of finding the two people that show up completely confident that they know they they're the right person they made the right choice in selecting me i'm going to crush this i don't understand those people that's something that is a totally foreign concept to me yeah i mean i i would say i am capable of both sides of that because, <laughs> because you have like you do have to have a certain level of decisiveness and confidence of when you're in the process um and i do genuinely feel like uh pretty decisive and confident once we're on set but I, I think it's the prep that I, I just like agonize, you know, and I would say I stayed awake even as we were shooting the movie, I was texting Kevin at like one in the morning and just like, I don't know if, I mean, one of the big challenges I faced was obviously this movie is set 20 years ago, but mm-hmm. our leads are now. <laughs> uh, so like, I think there was this sense of like, well, what approach do we take to that? And I, you know, at the end of the day, like Saul was not going to be the Irishman and we weren't going to age everybody. And we were not going to do the backwards baseball cap, uh, you know? So I think 
for us, it was like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's memed. People know it. Um, yeah. I think for us, it was like, well, look at Breaking Bad, look at Better Call Saul, look at, you know, there is, there's a degree to, to where you just accept this. And I still, you know, I still shot in, or, in order to try and take the movie into a space that felt like gritty 35 millimeter, similar sure. to the early films. We had a 4k capture mandate. We did, we did shoot digitally. Um, I used the Venice. I shot at a high ASA, like 2000 ASA. We used um, cook classic pink rows, which are a, they're modern lenses, but they're um, they have vintage sort of style, I guess I would say there's, sure. there's a little softer. There's a little bit more of a roundedness to them. There's a little bit of aberration. Um, and then we paired it with fil- filters that partially was to soften skin tone, but also was just to take the digital edge off. Um, and I think for Tobin Bell, it's like everyone just accept. like Tobin has looked very similar for the last like 20 or 30 years, sure. you know, and I don't think anyone questions it for some of our other actors like Shawnee and some of these, you know, you're the audiences. I mean, I had to make a decision between do I glamorize her or do I shoot this and make it look like a Saw movie? Right. And there were times where I tried to do both. And most of the time I landed on make it look like a Saw movie. And, you know, that takes a lot of vulnerability and confidence from Shawnee. That takes a lot of trust from her. Um, but every time I went to try to glamorize it, it just started to feel fake. The, you know, it didn't feel right. You have to have the performer, though, I think is the key. And Shawnee can, she's yeah. a great actress. She can do that. She can pull that off. Because I think when you do The Irishman, you're so obsessed the whole time with the magic trick of looking at how they've de-aged or looking for holes in it the entire time. And you're not paying attention to the story. If you just say, I'm okay, this is 20 years earlier. Take it. We, we gave a haircut. Their outfit is of the time 20 years ago. That's it. You're either going to go with it or you're not. And I think that you don't push back against it. There's something that happens where the de-aging is good as it is. Um, it just doesn't. Yeah. It was a little just, and, and like at the same time, like people are here to, you know, like, Amanda Young is not a sex symbol in in the in the films. Like she is a, I mean, she's obviously very attractive, but as a character, she is, you know, she's a drug addict. Purpose. Yeah, no, like she's a, in, you know, she is more unhinged than John Kramer. She's more so. It's like you you don't. It's not about like you know, just like making people look pretty. And even for a film like this, there's very much you know the. I mean the sort of broad strokes of the movie are out, you know, that John is goes to Mexico, gets discovers he's been scammed. You know, it the the movie as a result is very much like a character drama for the first, you know, probably I don't know, the you know, the first while in the movie. And then it sort of descends into a horror film. So we're also doing, you know, Kevin and I had a lot of discussion about, well, this is in some ways, this is the happiest or most joyous we'll ever see a Saw movie get, you know, and it, like what do we do and how do we do that? So it's not saccharin. It's still yeah. Saw. It still lives in a Saw world, but you know, you end up with lighting that's a little more flattering and Rembrandt, you know, there's still steep fall off there's, and they've started releasing some of these images, even where you see a little more of that. And then there's the brutal stuff where it's, people are sweaty and mucky and, you know, the lights down lighting them and it's yeah. kind of brutal, you know? 
what you would expect to see or what you would anticipate from that. But if you give yeah. that kind of room in the beginning of a film, even if it's a saw film, it doesn't matter what movie it is. Yeah. If you give characters room to breathe, when it all starts to unwind and descend, as you put it, then it actually carries weight. And that's what you want to happen. You want these actions to carry weight because at the end, if they don't, then they're just fodder and that can be fun. There's a place for that, but it's more impactful if you care. And I mean, we'll wait and see what audiences think. But when I watch the movie, having read the script, knowing what we shot, I mean, there's 35 minutes of deleted scenes, like from the movie, not, you know, and, um, it, I had a few goosebump moments watching the movie and I knew where it was going and what, what was going to happen. And just where I was like, I did never expect that I would care like in the way that I was feeling because I'm like, it's just so hard when you've worked on something to actually let go. And I had a few of those moments and I think audiences will have a lot of those. There's as much as the trailer has spoiled the only, you know, there, I haven't watched it yet. Cause I'm, yeah. I'm just, I, tend to go yeah. into these I want as blind as possible sure. especially yeah. these ones yeah and the trailer the, there's so much that they didn't reveal in a trailer so okay. like this one we actually they I was doing I was doing color on the movie when I saw the trailer for the first time and they had gotten bids from and like I've never been on a studio film before this is my first studio film so mm-hmm. was, the whole process was fascinating to me and it's you know they had gotten bids, I guess, from multiple trailer companies where they had done a version of the trailer. Um, and I, one of them was just the standard thing you see today, which is the entire movie from a to the end of the movie. Right. And then the other one was really interesting and funny and weird. And that's the one they went for. Oh, nice. And so there's, yeah, I would say unless you like frame by frame the trailer, you know, there's so, there's very little it'll actually spoil. So like, and they, once you see the movie, you should watch the trailer because it's actually a pretty damn good trailer. Yeah. And I'm somebody who actually, I like trailers. It's just something that happened that in about the last 10 years, they got too much of the entire story being laid out. And so now I've kind of become just a weirdly enough. It's almost like back to the eighties again, where I just, I look at a poster I'm like, okay, if that's, if that's an interesting title, there's somebody that's attached to it that I like, I'll give it a shot or it's something I'm working on that I'm covering. And that's about it. And it's just, those are kind of the criteria. It's a, you know, saw is one of those things. It's like, okay, I'll see what they're up to. I'll I'll check in. That's a name I know. So I don't need to see the trailer. I'm already on board. Yeah. And this is so, I mean, there's so much, you know, saw X looks cool. It sounds cool. Like like where, you know, it feels legacy in the sunset. You're like, oh, we've gotten to a point where, you know, there's 10 of these films now, which is crazy. Um, and, and I do actually think, you know, like myself being an example, like it came out early 2000s. It's synonymous with early 2000s horror yeah. and synonymous with like, I mean, I know that they hate, you really don't like it being perceived as torture porn. I mean, I know that's just not, I, I think we're Pat, or we're, yeah. is it, they still use that term for it or is that, I don't, done? I think there are, we'll, we'll wait and see what the critics say. I mean, I, okay. I think that term has come up. It's never, that's not how we see John Kramer. That's not how Tobin Bell sees John Kramer. That's not how the producers see the movie. That's not how, when I'm going into it, I'm like, as an audience member, I just don't see it that way because I, I'm invested in the, the thrill of this experience and in, asking myself what would i do in this situation i'm not for me it just it do, it doesn't feel like i'm sure there are other people who disagree with me and have a very, you know the early 2000s i mean 
to have movies involving torture and then you also have the bush administration and you have all this stuff going on i think it was sort of an inevitable thing but we're in a very different world now Mm -hmm. Um, and we're speaking in this movie i would say is speaking to things that are relevant you know and and speak i think that's something saw has done well um and you know like saw six dealing with like health insurance and sort of that so i I do this is another movie that's it's speaking to bigger issues and you know um yeah it has something to say as well well i think that the idea of when you use something like torture porn is there torture in this yes there there is absolutely torture as a part of this but it's not for the sake of torture this is if anything you call this like plot porn where they've just dissected and it's like the way that they turn the plot where it's just it will it's that twist of the reveal and how they could just that was the thing that made the first saw so successful i think a 95 percent of that movie and why we're here today is that ending that they pull the rug out from under you and they redefine what you just watched and that was so much of this that it's like these machinations of the plot and how they build on each other and how they all fit together so i I think that's in the the entries that i don't resonate with or they don't connect with me as much are the ones that they're more focused on that than actually telling a story it's like yeah. they had a clever cute idea but like you're saying part six the one with health the healthcare system and what was going on in the country at that time with us looking at like the possibility of a single payer and those kinds of things like these are clearly movies that have something on their mind but it's not yeah. as overt and i think that it's fun that you get to play around in those themes and those bigger ideas through this format yeah and this film is this is probably, you know, this is the most linear Saw film there is. It's, you know, it is the most, it is a, a man's story that we're going on an emotional journey with. And whether or not John Kramer is a hero, you know, that is for, I think, audiences to decide whether he's a hero or a villain or, you know, there is, I think, complex villains are fascinating, you know, and, and I think yeah. that somebody that has something, you know, Today's episode of the Following Films podcast is brought to you by Bookmans. Do you have books, movies, or music gathering dust on your shelves? Give them a new life at Bookmans. They gladly accept trade-ins and buy used media. Clear up some space for new artistic journeys while knowing that your books, movies, and music will find a loving home. On my latest trip to Bookmans, I found a copy of the 1946 film, Beauty and the Beast. This film is an absolute classic and a cinematic treasure that has stood the test of time, captivating audiences for generations now. This film is extraordinary. It weaves a spellbinding tale that touches the heart and ignites your imagination. From the very first frame, the exquisite artistry and attention to detail transport you to a mesmerizing realm of fantasy and wonder. Cocteau's visionary direction infuses each scene with poetic elegance and it allows the story to unfold in a visually stunning and emotionally resonant manner. One cannot help but be captivated by the production design and breathtaking cinematography. The opulent castle, with its haunting corridors and magical rooms, becomes a character in itself. And this isn't like when people say New York is a character in the film. This is a literal character in the film. The ethereal lighting and intricate set pieces create a visual feast that immerses the audience in a realm of enchantment. What truly sets this rendition of Beauty and the Beast apart is its ability to delve beyond the surface and explore the complexities of human nature, 
The film delves into themes of love, sacrifice, and the transformative power of acceptance. It reminds us that true beauty lies within, and that appearances can be deceiving. The allegorical elements presented throughout the story add depth and thought-provoking layers, making it a timeless tale with universal resonance. Beauty and the Beast, it's nothing short of a triumph when it comes to storytelling and craftsmanship, a true cinematic gem that continues to captivate audiences even after decades. There's very few things you can see that were made 80 plus years ago, or almost 80 years now, I guess, if I'm doing my math correctly, um, that still hold up. That stands as a testament to the power and imagination and the enduring appeal of a tale as old as time. If you seek a film that transports you to a world of magic, look no further than this timeless masterpiece. I cannot recommend the film highly enough and recommend that you go to your local Bookman's to unearth your new favorite film. Remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Enjoy the rest of the show. They do things in a way you may not agree with, um, you know, morally, but have like really strong reasons for doing that. That's interesting. So, oh, I, yeah. 100%. It's the, it's that, and, and of course, that's a conversation we need to be having right now because we are so divided um in a political social sense right now that there are you know me being somebody who's fairly left-leaning pretty much you know a communist in my dad's eyes i'm sure Um, (laughs) so, so that if a i have had this tendency to think that people who disagree with me because i'm so hard you know aligned in my views that if they see the world differently than me then that means that they might be a bad person i need to break away from that and i think that the idea of somebody that maybe has similar views to me but they're going about something in a completely horrible way is what's the more important is the amorality what matters or is it the end that matters if that's what it's playing with something along those lines yeah Yeah, exactly and i think that's that's sort of you know i think what's really actually exciting about this film is it does um, even when we were doing the commentary for it, the gentleman that was shooting a lot of like shooting a lot of the behind the scenes and talking through a lot of the interviews was just, you know, he was like, this movie gave me so much to chew on and think about. And I just have not, I've never had that experience with a saw film before, you know? And right. I think, I think obviously there's a lot of literature about saw and there's, you know, there's even scholarly literature about it, um, you know, and, but this one, yeah, it's really, it's, it's still like a bad, you know, it's still the bad boy of movies. I mean, we're still like just under NC 17. They had to resubmit it three times or whatever, you know, sure. all that shit. And Kevin, you know, Ke- that's, I was always asking Kevin about it. Cause I'm like, what's that process? Like, what is the MPA? Like, and he's like, yeah, <laughs> and it feels so irrelevant to me now where I'm like, we're in the age of internet and streaming where you could go on the internet and just type in any horrifying thing you want and it will populate like a full roster of images of that horrifying thing. So yeah. like what is the MPA that kind of a world, but it still matters and studios won't release an NC 17 movie um, in wide release. So it's the, the theaters that there's that why I assume the studios, cause all, a lot of the big chains, they just won't even touch an NC 17 film. Yeah. yeah I assume I, I'm a little, it's actually a little like unsure, but I know that, uh, yeah, I think, and also I just think they can't make their money back. Of course. All kinds of movies. So luckily for us, it's like, I do think Saw it all has an, and always has and probably always will, as long as they make them, will ride right up to that line. 
you know, and um, that's pretty fun to do. And and that's one of those things that it and me not being a producer, not being a businessman, anything like that. But I feel like there would be there's an underserved audience that would absolutely if you had those art house theaters that are in every city, you have like the small mom and pop places that would be willing to play something that was unrated. If in tandem, you release the unrated version of this, but then it's maybe this chains wouldn't carry it at the same time. But it seems like that yeah. I would love to be able to see things like that in the original yeah. intended form. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like, it's something I've talked with Kevin about too. Cause I'm like, what are you, you know, like, what are your feelings about this? And Kevin's like, I just, there is no director's cut. Like I, you know, he's like, this is the cut that I, it's, he's the editor, so. yeah, there's so little that he, there's a lot that he cut to make the movie better. You know, mm. and there's, there were not, and he said, even sometimes making the cuts for the MPA makes the scene stronger, sometimes cutting away faster, sometimes hearing the, you know, you kind of have to go in and throw all your cards, so to speak. It seems like, I feel like you just, I was always like, can we just shoot a scene that's so graphic that we know they're going to cut it, that we can get <laughs> to the edge on all the other stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I think they're a little more savvy than that, but it, it's like, you know, there is, um, and can't you can't just drop that kind of money on prosthetics, but it's you know it 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 is something where like there is no we're talking at this point about like shots, a few shots or frames, yeah, you know a few like or some edit points or like you know something being handheld versus stabilized or like pretty minor things. So it actually wouldn't advantage the audience to see it, and I, I do think. Kevin fully stands behind this edit and like, I, you know, I think he, he's, it's amazing to see somebody who's a director and an editor. And he's just like very, I asked him about his process and um, it's like, you know, the most thorough process. It's like watch everything, sub clip, every single usable piece from all the footage. And then he's like, then the movie just cuts itself because you put it all online and then you just like chop it down and then you watch it again. And where it's not working, you chop it down. And I think, yeah, this is the, I don't remember the runtime, but I think it is the long. They said it's the longest saw. Is it over two hours long? It's not over two hours. I think it's an. I think it's like a couple minutes longer than one of the other. Okay. So yeah, it's it's like, and I watched it. I when I we I had to watch the like DCP for theaters, like for QC, and I watched the HDR and the SDR versions. I think we did it in one day, so it was kind of a long. That's a lot. I remember going into one of those screenings that needing to use the bathroom and being like let's just see if i feel like i can watch this without you know being upset <laughs> which i could have stopped the screening and like whatever but it was fine yeah. you know what i mean there is like oppenheimer i was like jesus christ guys like i gotta go pee <laughs> like you know the three-hour movie thing i'm just like where's an intermission if like i don't want to do a three-hour movie like I, I, it, it depends on the movie there's certain ones that invite it that i'm totally fine with it i enjoy it and i could hang out in that world for an extra yeah, you know, two hours or certain ones that by they're longer and the pacing is just right. And it feels like, you know, you look at like the director's cut of Dr. Sleep and something like that just plays quicker somehow when yeah. it's through, when it's three hours long. Seen it, the director's cut of Dr. Sleep. Is it better? Much better. Is the, yeah. The, yeah. The not director's cut kind of lost me a bit. Um, do you, Give it a shot. It's yeah. on, I, I mean, I, I have it, the yeah. physical copy, but I think on HBO, they had both streaming yeah. on there. Out. And if you like Flanagan's work, I definitely would highly recommend it because yeah. he got to really flesh it out in a way that movie's kind of a miracle that it even works at all. Yeah. So, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. I'll check it out. Thanks for the recommendation. Yeah. But um, 
I, the, the one thing I was going to just kind of touch on there, it's the creativity that comes when your back's in a corner and the idea of something that there's an edit that's being forced to get the rating, to get that R rating instead of an NC-17. Yeah. And it's like the, the Kill Bill thing with going to black and white. And now I couldn't imagine not seeing the movie that way. And that's the reason they did that. And sometimes you end up with, while it wasn't the creative choice you would have made in the moment because of some outside force, you end up with a better decision. It's not the way you want to make art necessarily, but sometimes it does actually service the narrative. Absolutely. I mean, a movie like, you know, Saw is, Saw comes from a model that is not, you know, it's not hundred million dollar movies. These are, these are made with a certain speed and a certain, you know, um, I, I, for me, yes, it was a jump in the sense that like, I, (laughs) it's only because of Mobland that it felt like a huge, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like, you know, and I've done a lot of independent films, so there, you know, this was the most days I'd had on a movie, but when you get to it down to it and you're shooting a trap in like a day and a half or day, it's like, that's a lot of material to shoot very quickly. And it involves a lot of pieces. And, you know, we were doing trap tests, I think throughout pre-production, I think we did three to four tests for every single trap and the reason you're testing it is you're testing stunts you're testing rigging you're testing effects you're testing you know the prosthetics don't arrive until they're made and that's Mm -hmm. you know and so those were kind of the we shot the movie in two blocks we shot everything without prosthetics um last year and then we went down for december and came back and shot the rest but the great thing was it actually let Kevin, like we let Kevin and I have like all of December where you got to play around with the footage. Yeah. And got to actually like sit and digest because, you know, as you would imagine, most of the prosthetics involve the trap sequences. So it's like we shot a lot of drama of the film and then we shot, not that those are not dramatic. They're very dramatic, Um, but we shot, we actually got to do, it actually gave us more pre-production time, even though we weren't on the clock for it. Um, but it, it actually advantaged the movie and we were able to figure out a lot more of the puzzle. And I mean, Kevin is really like the puzzle master. He's, he's very collaborative. Um, he's, you know, I never felt, I never felt told what to do. I always felt trust. I always felt, um, I always felt total and in, in sync communication. And um, I think for me, it was always like, I want to make him happy. And, and, sh- you know, I was going to him with, sort of here's the color arc I see in the movie. And I had it sort of, you know, placed out and because my crew is all Mexican and I don't speak Spanish, I was, you know, also using a lot, I would take location stills and mm-hmm. then I would draw on them for where the lights should go and where things should come from. And Interesting. so how do I visually represent this? And I'd worked with this gaffer before his name is um, Nacho Sanchez. So is it Nacho Pepe Sitlali uh as girl Luznia was my b camera operator just really great people and and sid lolly vargas was my a cam first ac and she is amazing amazing focus puller and she hired most of the camera team and i loved them because they you know they would dress up we would work six day weeks in mexico so six there's six day you start at 8 a.m and then you can only go till 3 p.m so if you run long on your saturday or your friday night and your turnaround times push back your call time. You can't go past three on Saturday. So there's like interesting. Yeah, it's just a different style of working in Mexico. They work six day weeks. What's weird is I came back to the U.S. shot a movie right after that. It was my first union film, and we mm-hmm. worked six day weeks, and I had way worse hours. And I was like, this is weird. But Mexico, <laughs> we like they would dress up on Saturdays, 
and they all dressed up as Billy uh, the last day. And so they all had like little spirals and nice. It was just adorable. And um, yeah, really great technicians. And, but you know, the communication is, it's just a different thing in another country. An an additional uh, challenge to communicate, especially something that like where the idea of communicating what you want to happen visually and how to achieve that that's it's tough to pull off that communication sometimes when you share a language so being able to pull that off when there's a language barrier it's got to be pretty unique challenge for you yeah well the probably the most difficult communication i mean i so a lot of the movie you know like many saw movies there's a good portion that takes place in a you know singular space sure and so one of the big challenges for me as a cinematographer was, you know, there's a trailer that's going to get cut. You know that the audience is going to sit and watch this movie for, you know, an hour and a half to two hours. Yeah. And I don't, and I want the audience to have an experience that evolves emotionally and visually. And so part of the challenge is, you know, saw one, obviously it's basically one look inside of the game space. You know, it's the bluish whitish fluorescence and right. they cut away to some of the other traps and, you get to see some of those arsenical greens and some of those other things. But then Saw 2 is a lot of that like yellow, ochre, jaundiced kind of color, right? And yeah. Sort of stuff. Oh, God, that needle scene. Jesus. Right? So good. And you don't, a lot of those movies were early 2000s, so there's a heavy color push from the DI. Yeah. They really pushed the color. Um, What I wanted to do was hearken to that, you know, hearken back to that and really like, um acknowledge those palettes but then i also i wanted to build it into our lighting in the space so we have you know we'll use those colors in the foreground and then in the background you're seeing like sodium vapor orange there's a three-dimensionality to it and i'm trying to create depth and use those color palettes but in order to create an evolution within the space because i didn't want it to just look like one tone um a lot of what we did was we basically tented an entire warehouse and then we had lights, we had rigged probably 50 lights. Um, we had lights outside of all the windows. And then inside the space, we had rigged probably, you know, LED, or it's all LED. But then mm-hmm. I worked with the art department and had them dress every light. So anything that's a tube light, it's got fluorescent cover, you know, housings covering it. Anything that's a bulb, it's it placed inside of an industrial light fixture. So all these practicals are built into the space so that they're completely built in and controllable. Wow. And then what I was able to do was in the logic of the world, this is 2005 ish or 2003 to four. Nothing is treated as led in the, in the world. Everything is treated as an industrial fixture. And in my head, it's John, you know, it's, it's as though John has said um, every trap has circuits that are on timers. And so when a trap comes on, lights come on, when a trap goes off, you know, and it concludes the lights connected with the trap shut off. And so it gave the room like a evolving look. Um, and it allowed us, it allowed us the ability to be able to kind of change the colors and space, um, in a way that still felt organic to the story, not sure. in a way that, um, you know, I'm not, there's no purple in this movie. There's no, also, we didn't want any cyan. We were like, our blues are, are we're either going like slate blue or we're going, um, you know, like a slightly more magenta blue or a cobalt, or mm-hmm. we're going very like it's green, you know, there's not any, and sometimes we didn't always land that, you know, it just, and so in color, we bent those colors and made sure that they lived in these distinctive palettes. Um, 
And there's there's a line, I think it's in the trailer, but there's a line in the movie that, um, you know, one of these people's out, asked John Kramer when he gets abducted, where are you taking me? It's like to hell, you know? And then like, we really did use, like there's a lot of Catholic imagery that we played with in the film. There's, you know, the crown of thorns, sure. which you see the brain surgery happen. Images. I mean, there's definite tie-ins to that. We we pulled some of these like Renaissance, like medieval, you know, we're looking at medieval torture devices and stuff like that. And ultimately, um, you know, part of the color palette is like, how do you bring in this like Dante's Inferno, like, you know, this descent into hell. So it's so it's actually a lot of fun to get to play with. And I'm still doing some pretty like, you know, that we had we had I you know saw as exclamation points so it's like you know how do we kind of just go big because there's no you don't go quietly with us well, it's saw if you're going for a red you're gonna have the deepest darkest red that you've you're not gonna have a subtle hint of red in the background yeah <laughs> so yeah i mean i just yeah and i'm i think there's some intent there's just some fantastic um you know, our production designer, Anthony Stabley, he was in Mexico well before me, I think by a month or two. Mm-hmm. And he is super passionate about his work and um, worked with an incredible range of people um, from Mexico. And they, you know, they had a traps department that specifically just focused on the traps. And he's, you know, Anthony's a madman. He has two, he has two young children and he would, he he's talked about how like he'd be driving them to school and, he'd have an idea and he'd call Kevin and be like, what do we do this for this? Like, you know, it's these brutal trap ideas. Um, and it is, it is a game, you know, I don't, I'm not really involved in that. I, I'm right. more involved in executing, but I've never done a movie where like when, when we would meet about the traps, it's like you have makeup, you have wardrobe. Cause even, even something as simple as like, let's say, you know, let's say somebody has to saw their arm off. Sure. Well, we work with wardrobe and, and nobody says anything to wardrobe and they end up with long sleeves in the movie. And it's like, you can't have the sleeve suddenly be shorter that you saw earlier in the movie. And now they're in the trap in the same outfit and their sleeves are rolled up and they're so they can cut their arm off. No. So it's like, that's, you know, that's not something that happens in this movie. Like, but that's an example of like, actually every department matters. And um, I mean, I believe that in just in, from an ethical perspective anyway, like a PA is, is a, you know, everyone's important. Everyone matters. Like it takes us all. Um, but yeah, the, one of the, I, I set it up and didn't f- finish like one of the communication challenges I did have those, I got COVID on the movie. And so we, we did two days with where I had COVID and I was in a trailer right off of the set. Mm-hmm. And I, had to be able, you know, I used walkies, and then I used headsets. Oh my god, man! Looking at like I was looking at monitors. Yeah. We were already into some of this lighting that I, you know, where I had all this control, so I was able to actually dial in all the lighting over a walkie using wow. just like the names of the fixtures in our lighting diagram, and so be like, can you dim this down, dim this up? And my goal was, you know, you don't on a movie like this, your pace has to be so fast you just never want to stop shooting. Of course. So a lot of it is just like reactively, you know, reactively dimming stuff up and down. And my console, my board operator had to do a lot of very on the fly work. And I was a little out of it those two days. And then we ended up having to shut down for just a little bit. Um, cause a few other people tested positive and then, uh, we ramped right back in and I had operated the first four weeks of the movie. But after that, I told them, I'm like, I just can't. I don't have the like physical ability to hold a camera right now. So oh. 
you know, it was just like my energy levels were plummeted. So I ended up, which I love operating, but also when you have two cameras, it is nice to be able to be at a monitor and be like, you know, do this, do this. And um, yeah, so there were advantages to that in a way it, it timed out perfectly, you know, uh, um, not, not my ideal situation, but I also had food poisoning. On this. Oh my God, <laughs> it was a, it was a fully physical experience. <laughs> so I, I assume you it probably not going to Mexico city on vacation anytime soon, considering hey, that, or would you go, do you want to go back and do it over at this I actually point? Love, like I actually love Mexico city. So yeah. like it does have great food and like, I know what happened with that. It's just like, I, it's so sad. And this is like the weirdest story to tell in some ways, but I like took my, you know, it's really hard to know how to say thank you to people sure. um, as you're making a movie. And, and I, it's really important to me that the crew that I'm working with know that their input and their work is valued. And so one of the weekends I like took my, all my team out to a restaurant and they had, we had recommended a place we showed up after working and it was the wait was going to be so long. And they were like, there's this famous fish, like seafood place <laughs> we should go. And they all like recommended it. And we all went and then a number of us had food poisoning. Oh so, no, man. Probably had to be that. And I mean, it was not a fun situation to arrive on set and immediately release my bat, like everything inside of me in front of other people. I've never done that and on a set. So I had to be like rushed over to the nurse, get an IV drip, and then get back on set. <laughs> yeah, you can't stop shooting. That's just how it goes. No, so. no. And like, I, it's not that I would want to. It's just what more gets under my skin is when I'm like, oh, I, like they definitely. I think they took three shots before I was like, when I was like literally being hydrated, like mm -hmm. by an IV drip. And then one of the producers came up to me and was like, Hey, how do you feel about this last shot? It looks a little weird to me. And I'm like, I haven't seen anything we've shot today. Like, you know what I mean? And I was like, yeah. Oh like, yeah, I see what you're talking about, you know? And then we went, we reshot it, but it was just like, um, they had just, you know, they had to go. So, yeah. and, and in some instances, I was able to just turn the lights on, but in, in a lot of the instances, I really did have to continually just change the levels of different things, um, which is weird. But in a way, like, I think I have like an, I have like LEDs in my home mm -hmm. and, you know, I think a lot of us do now and I can control them with a phone so I can change the colors, do all that. But I think starting to light spaces in my house with LED bulbs and just like constantly fiddling with like color separation and what's on, what's off and all that. I've started to just take that into all the films that I'm doing and how I light those. Um, it makes sense. Instead of having to gel everything and do all that, it's just, yeah, yeah it makes a lot of sense to do it that way. So. Yeah. And not everyone's a fan. I mean, I, you know, we, we still use some tungsten heads, but mm -hmm. in, in the most, most of it were like sky panels and Astera's and whatever those aperture bulbs are called. And, um, we actually use the orbiters as well. I don't know if you know what those are, but it's no idea. Airy made a, I don't think they've been that popular, unfortunately, but Aerie made like a hard light, almost like a Fresnel. Okay. Um, and so I installed one of the challenges was that the sets were not fully built because it's also when do they make their spend, right? And so sets don't get built right away because you're trying to figure out if you're going to have to store things or keep this. Yeah. You know. And so they, they made this spend to build the sets later in the game, which meant that I, in order to light our most complex space with all these lights, 
I was told them I needed two days of rigging and a day of like pre-lighting because my thought was, well, if I have two days of rigging, everything will be in and up. And then my lighting day, I'll set all my looks for the different timelines. Sure. Didn't work out that way because the days all overlapped and the they were testing traps and doing stunt stuff right up until the end. So I ended up with a day of rigging and then the next day we had to just conclude the rigging. And so I ended up, I had a, I have a little black magic 6k camera and I, I walked around the room and turned it on and set it to my settings for the, what I was going to use the Venice at and just dialed in our base lighting look and then had to be like, all right, I've already kept you guys over time by like three hours. I can't we're, and we're, you know, this was on a Saturday. So I'm like at 6 oh, PM wow. on a Saturday, I can't, we're starting shooting and let, you know, on a Monday, I can't do this to you. So we did have to kind of design a lot of those as we went. Um, even though like I kind of knew, I knew the color choices I was making and I knew that the palette, I just, I wasn't able to pre-design which, you know, maybe that's just the case on anything you do. I don't know, but I was hopeful. So when you're locking that in, if you're using LEDs, are you able to program that and then just have that lighting set up that you can switch between whatever the setup is? So you have that already done. And so you essentially don't have to rehang every time that you just have the, that built and you can just switch. Wow. That's great. Yeah. It's all DMX. DMX. The only challenge is there was still a language barrier challenge. And so, actually don't i don't know like i don't know board like i don't know the technology that goes into like like using a console mm-hmm. for, like, i i kind of want to know it because i think i could speak to some things a little better if i but the main thing was i didn't know what was getting saved and wasn't wasn't getting saved even though there were things i asked for things didn't always translate um not through anyone's fault i think it's just like some miscommunications that happened and so one of the things on this movie was the last day that we shot was all inserts, um, mm. shot out our talent. We flew, started, you know, we got them wrapped. And then the last day was like, we need to clean up, you know, all these inserts for, I mean, Saul lives in a lot of inserts. And yeah. so, um, one of my challenges with that was like also working with the script supervisor to be like, we, what was our look when we did this? You know what I mean? And yeah. so, a lot of, and I was nervous that that would get missed because frankly, I don't know if anyone other than the script supervisor and myself on that set fully comprehended what we were shooting and the lighting that it was in when we were shooting it. And so there was a degree of like, and I was running two cameras. We ran two cameras the whole movie, but mm-hmm. you know, the inserts, it's like, you're shooting an insert over there. I'm shooting an insert over here. And I have to keep dancing between and making sure that we're in the world. I mean, an insert's a different thing than shooting like a head to toe you know, shot. But no, I mean, the yeah, like there was, we'll see how the movie does. You know, we'll see how like fans well, react. But I will say this much. You have me more excited to see this film um, before I was even, before I started this conversation with you. So okay. that's something that I'm, I wanted to see this anyway, but now knowing this was a thoughtfully made film actually really. I mean, I know I have an idea of, I don't think it's going to be like a mumble core movie all of a sudden in terms of direction. <laughs> yeah. My expectation. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be yeah. the comfy couch version of saw. Yeah. Or yeah. Whatever the, that yeah. I mean, one of the producers kept saying like, Oh, we made a grown up movie, you know? And I'm like, there you go. You know? And I'm like, okay. Like 
I, you know, I think that's not how I would phrase it, phrase it, but you know, it's, that's the idea. We went and we made a mature, like film that well, you know takes you on an emotional journey. I know the film has fans beyond my age and your age, but um, these movies came out when I was in college. And so yeah. these were movies that I saw when I was pretty young and I've grown quite a bit that amount of time and the things that i want to see have changed quite a bit in that amount of time so there's still a lot of things that i still like from that period of my life and stuff that i love then that i still love now but my taste has definitely evolved and grown and i think that you have the room with your audience that to say okay we're going to try something a little bit different here we give you a leeway i, I think you have an audience that's willing to try new and weird things with this franchise so i'm, I'm excited to see this man yeah no i'm i can't wait for you to watch it it's it's yeah it was I don't remember how many months of my life it was, but and the last year of my life in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, my, one of my favorite things was just like, uh, one of our early like line producers wasn't familiar with the franchise and they were, um, you know, they were just putting together a budget and they, they're like, Oh, like what, what size trailer does Billy need? <laughs> um i don't know what he got, like a large lunchbox <laughs> yeah and um you know that's been that that's really that's really saw in a nutshell there <laughs> that's hilarious yeah. the biggest trailer you can possibly get us and then we'll take that out of the budget and use it for something we want <laughs> oh there you go that's the better way right. of handling it see there you go right <laughs> yeah you gotta scheme so you can get as much money for the to get on screen as possible yeah Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today, Nicholas. It was really nice to meet you and congratulations. I, I uh, again, love Mobland and really looking forward to Sonic. So great to see you and I'm uh, looking forward to whatever's coming down the pike next after this, man. I expect to see big things from you, man. I really appreciate it. I, um, yeah, I think the next, I did a movie right after Saw that's called Bone Lake and it's uh, produced by this studio called LD Entertainment. And um, it's direct, the director is this friend of mine who did this movie spoonful of sugar that is like a shutter horror yeah movie. yeah yeah yeah. mercedes bryce morgan is her name and um it's an erotic horror thriller and they're very i haven't seen it yet but they're very excited about it and um they're submitting it to festivals now so that'll hopefully be the next thing that comes out um just depending on timelines yeah just looking at your cast real quick and pulling this up on here wow man that's uh yeah the Oh, what, oh god what was the character from malignant um anyway so yes this is yeah this is uh this could be damn good yeah. for you man that's and great very i mean we went full giallo like it's like i this was also that was a movie where i'm like i got i convinced them to give me like two condors and 18ks on both of them so like i was like all right cool like i mean it is what the movie needed i wasn't just asking for it to have it it was you know, I was lighting 200 yards worth of forest. So I was like, but yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful film and um, very funny and, and entertaining. So. Okay. I got to ask, cause you've mentioned yellow twice now or three times. And I got to know if you had one to recommend to people, what would it be for people who are unfamiliar with the genre? I mean, I just feel like you got to see the original Suspiria. Yeah. Because it's like that, and I'm not even, I don't even, like, I've seen a decent amount of Giallo, and I'm not actually a huge, huge Giallo fan. I enjoy it. It's not, but it's not like when I, like, lean, that's not necessarily the movies I lean into, but I think they were made in a specific time in a specific way. And actually, like, because of that, they do some 
very weird and interesting things. And Argento mm-hmm. has these like crazy two minute shots that are like, what is this for? But it's cool. And it's set to Goblin. And so I'm like, yeah, I mean, uh, I would, but I would say, yeah, watch the original Suspiria. That's just like that opening 15 minutes is pretty, pretty remarkable. Fun. And yeah. yeah, if you're, especially, I think if you're an aspiring um, lighting designer, yeah. uh, cinematographer, there, there's definitely worse films to see early and just uh it, it could either excite you or just completely say well i can't do that and so you might walk away <laughs> completely after yeah. seeing something like that yeah i love i mean i i think what's been fun is like moblin is something that's a lot more restrained in some ways sure. and then something like bone leg and saw they're very expressionistic so it's sort of like i like things that are lyrical and i do want to find that in what i do but also i really like you know i like the mixture of those things so so do I. And uh, there's there's room for it. Um, it's one of the nice things about being a cinematographer. You can kind of play in a lot of different areas. Your cinematographers get known for specific things, but it seems like the thing that gets cinematographers working time and time again is they had an idea. They were able to support the director's vision. They did a good job and they weren't an asshole. It seems like those are kind of the keys to, to yeah. having a successful career. Yeah, that's what I, I mean. I've been doing this 10 years and I, you know, I feel like I'm just starting. So yeah, and it's like you you really do see like, oh, I'm glad I wasn't an asshole to that person because uh, <laughs> it, it's it's worth it's good career advice for anybody, I think. Yeah. Just uh, you know, we want to surround ourselves with people we want to work with again that we enjoyed working with. So yeah. Yeah. to figure you out Time enough to write this down Wish me luck, give me hope
always crack.